0: You have downloaded 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project Podcast. Episode 7, Victos Draconis Numquam Deride. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this episode is Draco, or Draco if you prefer, but I think it's Draco in Latin. It is the neutral sentry in What Lies Ahead. Costs one to res, strength zero, but when you res it, you can pay to increase its strength, and then its subroutine is a trace three to give a tag and end the run. Its flavor text is the title of the episode, which is Latin for never mock beaten dragons, or maybe never ridicule conquered dragons, or something like that. I'm no Latin major. This week's episode is basically the reverse of last week's episode, which focused on the runner, tips for the runner, the runner side of what lies ahead. This time the focus is on the corp, And some beginning corp advice. And the corp side of what lies ahead. But then uh, we've got some extra stuff in the back end. um, With regard to the upcoming release of the next booster pack for the reboot project. And then where we go when it comes to the flavor text. I've been reading for the Astroscript pilot program. Well, we're out of inserts. The next time that there's going to be an insert to read flavor text from is going to be from the third pack. So uh, I have some ideas. So if you're interested in that part, that'll be all in the back end of the episode. Anonymous tip. How precious are your agendas? You know, each side has two win conditions the corp wins by either scoring seven agenda points or flatlining the runner the runner wins by stealing seven agenda points or waiting out the corp until the corp runs its deck completely out now while flatlining the runner is an omnipresent threat It's the win condition maybe in, I don't know, 10% to 25%, 25% seems high. But a significant portion of games, it's always a threat. That secondary win condition for the runner is very uncommon. It's got to be less than, way less than 1% of games where the corp get runs out of cards, gets decked. So that means that the runner typically is going to win by scoring points. That's just the fact of it. So, while obviously the corp does not want to give up seven points, can the corp really expect never to give up any points at all? The answer to that is no. The, we By recognizing like, yeah, you know, sometimes the runner's going to score. It can kind of be freeing, I think, because... To, to feel like, oh, I can't I got to keep the runner, if the runner can't get into R&D, the runner might get, a, get an agenda there. If a runner gets into my hand, I got an agenda in my hand. I got to make sure I get this server really protected or the runner's going to get the agenda there. You can feel like you're really behind the eight ball as the corp. When in reality, you know, what are the chances that they're going to get an agenda off, and, off of R&D? Well, if you have a typical 49 card deck and you have a typical mix of 10, agenda cards, the chances are about one in five. So there's roughly a 20% chance that they're going to get an agenda off of R&D. And meanwhile, you know what the chances are going to be if there's one in your hand. If you've got one in your hand, well, try to have five cards in your hand. And then there's only a 20% chance there too. And as far as the remote, well, you know, there that's where the, the traps, not the traps, but the uh, The ambush and uh, assets and like Snare and Project Junebug come into play sometimes. Uh, If they, of Corp can get through, I mean, a runner can get through, maybe let them through. So don't get too worked up, basically, is the point. Don't get too worked up about a runner stealing an agenda. It's going to happen. So focus on your game plan and do what you can to, you know... Make the accesses be not just a cakewalk, right? You want to put ice in front of your HQ and R and D, but don't be overly bothered when they get through because it is costing them some resources. Very likely to do so. Don't feel like your agendas are so precious. Archived memories. It seems to me that it's more tricky for me anyway to play as the corp than to play as the runner. The runner is pretty easy. You're just like attack that or attack that or attack that or get tools to get past that and then watch out for traps. In fact, when I teach Netrunner to someone, I always teach the runner first. I made the mistake of having somebody learn the corp first and it's like, they have no idea what to do or when to do it. And so Beginning corp advice, I think, is a little harder to come by than beginning runner advice. Now, last week, I had a long thread that I copied from Board Game Geek and I, I, for runner advice, and I couldn't really find anything like that for the corp. So this what we're going to cover here this week is a kind of a mix of two different threads. One of them is from very early on, again, October of 2012, just about a month after the game was released, From the thread on BoardGameGeek, I keep losing as the corp, Jinteki non-customized. And even though it's Jinteki that's mentioned, the the comments that are being made here are broadly applicable across all corps. And then a second thread is just called Basic Strategy, and it's from February of 2014, about a year and a half after the game was released. Uh, Two thirds of the way through the spin cycle, in fact. So we'll go through this and see what people have to say. Again, like I said last week, if you've got some tip that you think is missing here, let me know. Uh, we, I have the contact information at the end of the show and in the show notes. So that first thread I keep losing as the Corp. The original poster, Charles Franklin, username the Chuck Frank. I just don't understand why I keep losing as the Corp. I've only played the game a handful of times with two different people. I lose every time. I made a vow that I would keep playing the corp until I won a game, but this is getting ridiculous. My opponents are all beginners just like me. Any corp advice for a complete noob? First response here we're going to have is from Toby Knott's, his username T underscore Knott's. From one noob to another, some ideas for you. One. Mulligans. You must have ice from the get-go. 2. Patience. Avoid letting your cash or your hand get close to zero. A very valid first turn can be ice, credit, credit, especially for expensive ice. 3. If the only ice you can res is very expensive, sometimes letting the runner through is a risk worth taking. For example, only having one agenda in a full HQ. 4. Get your economy going ASAP. Without credits, the corps are useless. Jeremy Owens, username Malhaku, says this, Biggest beginner corp advice I always give is never let them see you sweat. You have to have a measure of confidence in every action. If you get on the ropes at all, and the runner knows it, they will push and push to keep advantage. I will just note that uh, that's less relevant if you're only playing online. <laughs> uh, more of a face-to-face thing if, you're, if the opponent sees you getting frustrated. Anyway, back to the commenter. Other things. What weak points have, you, have the runners been exploiting? Are you not icing R&D and or HQ and they're getting you there? Have you let agendas sit in your hand too long and let HQ runs get you? Not every agenda has the luxury of scoring in a giant glacier. You have to get them scored and out of your hand. Are you spreading yourself too thin? Three servers with two ice each are almost always better than six servers with one ice each. Are you spending lots of actions drawing cards? Unless you have a purpose to do so, you shouldn't draw cards outside of your required draw step. If you don't have anything to do for the last action of a turn, taking a credit is almost always better than drawing a card. Ginteki, Well, lots of traps. Is your method of advancing an agenda too radically different from your method for a Junebug? That's the newbie advice that comes to mind. Have you played runner at all? If you haven't, you'll want to give it a try because you may get an idea of what works better or worse on the corpse side by experiencing the opposing side. And then in response to uh, user T. Knott's comment about mulligans, he says this as well. I actually heard these words come from a newer player as they shuffled their hand in after a mulligan. Can't start the game with five ice in hand. My jaw hit the table. Uh, Bcz username Byron C Zimmer, who was a frequent contributor in the early board game geek forums, he put a lot of work into assembling spoilers from early data pack announcements. I think he played the original Netrunner, so I always feel like his comments are useful. He says this: some other pointers against Shaper, it is best to vary the ice types protecting your side of the board two walls in a row isn't as powerful as a wall in a code gate certain ice need to be played later in the game such as chum certain ice need to be played earlier in the game or not at all such as cell portal if you end up not playing cell portal keeping it in your hand decreases the runner's chances of hitting something else in the hand one other card 50% two other cards 3 other cards? 25%. 4 other cards? 20%. Hiding an agenda in a pile of untrashable junk is a last-ditch defense, but it can work. If you do manage to get a cell portal down early, it means you put it in position 1 of any given server and just leave it there. When, if, it becomes useful to make the runner redo the run, Pop it out. As an aside, that's kind of a lot of info on Cell Portal for an ice that isn't very good, but it can apply to other types of ice too that early game stuff, late game stuff. Res it, don't res it. Continuing with BCZ's comment, vary the order you play your ambushes or agendas. If you always play an agenda first, that's what will get run. If you only play ambushes when the corp would be reasonably certain says corp means runner. Now corp would be reasonably certain to run that server. That's when they won't run. I think it means if you only play ambushes when you're pretty sure the runner can get through, well, then maybe they don't run. Against Kate, pad campaigns don't need to be protected. It costs Kate five actions, four credits and a run to trash a pad campaign. If they have magnum opus out, it costs them three actions, two magnum opuses and a run. Either way, that's an economy swing in your favor. If the runner starts running against your pads before being flipped, drop a snare out there and see them bump into it. Otherwise, keep the snares in hand for HQ accesses and keep the cache on hand to activate them. Richard Poole, username escapade, If the runner knows that any non-advancing server with a couple counters on it is a trap, then it means you need to start not finishing agendas to buy yourself time to set up other stuff. After all, if it's a trap, they'll never run on it. And keeping it safe that way, instead of keeping it safe in the scored zone, when you finally do score it, you'll encourage the runner to hit more traps. Don't res money assets until the turn you use them. That means res pad campaigns at the first step of your turn. That'll keep the runner from trashing a resed asset you haven't gotten the benefit of yet. The best hands to keep are full of ice and economy. The worst hands to keep are a ton of agendas. Don't play an agenda unless you think it's safe. This seems to directly contradict the advice from another user, but he says... The other cards in your hand will keep it safe better than one ice. You know two other people who play? Have them play, watch, and see what the corp does differently from you. And the final comment from this thread from Richard Linnell, username Solid Havoc. Remember that giving up a small agenda is not a huge loss. If you have a one or even a two point agenda, Go ahead and bluff it like a trap. Throw it out unprotected and advance twice. Don't necessarily score it. Let the runner run on it. Next time they'll run on your double advanced June bug, And if they don't run on it, score it the next turn. They'll feel like they need to run on all your unprotected drops after that. Two things that I try to impress on the new court players that I teach. You can always use more money. And you aren't in a hurry unless your deck is running low. Try not to draw more than the mandatory draw. Protect your agendas in other ways than using ice. Use precognition to move ice and assets to the top of R&D. Keep agendas in hand with other cards. Discard a face down to archives. Also, realize that luck is what luck is, and if you have a 10-agenda clump anywhere, but at the bottom of your deck, it's going to be a very short game that most likely won't go your way. And as a final note, you win the game when you score seven agenda points. But you generally get agenda points by winning the economic battle. Now, the second thread we're pulling from here is called Basic Strategy. And the original poster, Carl Fraudge, username Agent Kuo, says this. Okay, so I'm a complete noob, and I'm wondering if someone can give me like the most basic, basic strategy for this game. When I say basic strategy, I don't mean like, what am I supposed to try and do in general? I mean like, within the first couple turns, what should I be trying to do? As the corp, should I try to get ice over my central servers first, before building remote servers? Should I install assets without ice protecting them? What do I do if I have an agenda in hand and no eyes to protect my HQ? Just how should I be playing at the start, especially first turn? I want to add, try not to be specific with corpse or runners. Just give me a general idea of what I should be doing, if possible. So for the first few commenters, I've I've reshuffled the sequence here, and they're just going to be answering his questions and then a couple other comments that are just more general. So Aaron Schneider, username Rook, answering the, if you have no agenda in hand, an agenda in hand and no ice to protect it, why no ice? Your first piece of ice should usually go on HQ. If you started with no ice, or lost the first one to something, spend a few clicks drawing to find one. If you draw into more agendas instead, well, some games are like that. Username Tarqueln Says, answering, should I try to get ice over my central servers first? As a general rule, yes. Leave them open only if you have a specific reason to do so. When he says, should I install assets without ice protecting them? As above, but no, rather than yes. What do I do if I have an agenda in hand and no ice to protect my HQ? Cultivate a poker face. If this is your initial draw, mulligan. Username Bread Rising answers the first question about ice over centrals first. Hint, Anarch is generally about hitting the archives or trashing things. Shaper is generally about hitting R&D. Criminals love HQ. Keep that in mind when facing a certain faction. However, there are a ton of exceptions to the rule, and a lot of decks will install out-of-faction cards for more control. There's no right way to do it, but a strong opening move is to definitely protect HQ and R&D on turn one. Assess the situation based on how many agendas are in your opening hand, if you can get any economy going, and how much ICE you have. Just because you install ICE doesn't mean you need to pay to res it right away. Its mere existence will intimidate the runner. In answering installing assets without ICE protecting them, you can but that's typically a sign that it's a trap. I like to install my pad campaigns out in the open or behind small ice, just to make the runner waste the click and credits to get rid of it. And if they don't, I get money, so win-win. Usually, if you install something in the open, the runner will ignore it unless they're absolutely prepared for the possibility of a trap, so use that mind game to whatever advantage you wish. And answering if I have an agenda in hand and no ice to protect HQ. Bluff. Make them think, oh, he didn't protect HQ, therefore he probably doesn't have anything. A lot of runners, however, will make the open run on HQ anyway because it's easy to access to cards and free data sucker tokens. Other options include installing them in the open, very risky, drawing up and trashing them to archives, no risk, too risky, depending on the ice-protecting archives and the presence of Jackson Howard, a card that doesn't come around at the beginning of the second cycle, as well as if drawing up gets even more agendas into your hand, or simply leaving them there and making the runner play the probability game. One agenda in a hand of five is still a 20% chance for the runner. Odds are in your favor. User Downer Answering those three questions about ice over centrals? Yes, centrals first. HQ or R&D depends. HQ is about fearing a count siphon and bluffing or protecting an agenda-saturated hand. R&D is usually the long-term goal of the runner. Ideally, turn one, ice both. Generically, though, no mulligan, I ice R&D first. Mulligan, I ice HQ first. No mulligan is a tell of a strong hand, which is no or few low-value agendas. Mulligan, however, you keep what you get so you could be stuck with an agenda flood. Even if you are not, you baited them into ice and or wasted their run when they got nothing. Installing assets without ice protecting them, he says, depends. A good rule of thumb is to look at the trash cost. The higher it is, the more likely the answer is yes. Another good rule of thumb is how long you will use the asset. For example, I'll often protect an Adonis campaign, but less because I'm concerned with them trashing it, I'd rather they not, of course, and more because it will only last for so long, and I'll need the remote anyway. If it's an asset that is meant to stay out there forever, like Pad Campaign, I'm more likely to just leave it unprotected, since it doesn't have a clean, timing transition into agendas and the question about having an agenda but no ice to protect it in HQ. Generically, the best things you can do to mitigate your risks are A, draw cards, either to get ice or provide more cover for your agenda in your hand, or B, install it into a remote. Otherwise, you just have an agenda in your hand with no ice protecting HQ. And then a couple of comments that are more general. First from Ragnarok again. Although you said to not be specific, the way you play will often depend on your opponent's faction. Here are some broadly applicable tips. Install ICE on HQ, especially if you're playing against Criminal because of Account Siphon. Install ICE on R&D, especially if you're playing against Shaper and Anarch because of Maker's Eye and Medium. After you feel reasonably comfortable with your central protection, and have some cash on hand, start building a remote. Expensive-to-trash assets like Pad PadCampaign, SanSan, etc. probably don't need ICE protection, at least early on. Put taxing ICE on central servers and end-the-run ICE on remotes. By taxing, I mean stuff that costs a lot to get through relative to its cost, and or hurts the runner, but doesn't necessarily end the run. Good choices are Shadow, Caduceus, Neurokatana, etc. Chimera and Hadrian's Wall are terrible choices, because they just cost you a lot of money, and don't hurt the runner at all. On the other hand, Chimera is pretty good on a remote server, because it will stop the run when you really need it to. As an aside, Chimera is an ice that comes in the third data pack that can be any of the main types barrier, code gate, sentry when you res it, and then it de reses after the encounter, so you have to keep paying to re res it for the end of the run. Don't be afraid to give up a few random accesses on central servers early if that's what it takes to keep money in the bank, score an agenda, or stabilize your position and John Griffin, username DJ Griff, There's no substitute for just playing the game a lot. I think, in general, we tend to want to come into a game that's new to us and avoid the common mistakes that new players make because we don't want to be seen making them. And yet, no amount of a thread telling you to watch out for something like Maker's Eye will be more revelatory than your own first-hand experience of an opponent running on an unprotected R&D with Maker's Eye and pulling three agendas for free less than five minutes into the game. While it's not the most pleasant sensation, that kind of thing is potent. I guarantee you will not forget it. Part of the fascination of games like this is looking at new cards, and having their true significance occasionally be lost on you, until you experience being on the business end of them, or their unexpected combos. So there are some tips for the corp, broadly, and again, if you have something that you think would fit right in here, please feel free to share it with me, and I'll include it in next week's show. Lemuria Code Cracker, getting into the changes made by the Reboot Project in What Lies Ahead for the Corp Side. In this first data pack, there is a clear theme of tracing. In the core set of the 60 corp cards, 7, that's 12%, had traces on them. In what lies ahead alone of the 11 corp cards, 5, 45%, have traces. We also see the first PSI card, that's PSI, short for uh, psionic, I guess. Mind reading. And uh, we also have now that all corps will have a 3-2 agenda. That's a 2 agenda points for 3 advancement costs. Of the 11 cards, 7 of them receive changes. All of them are buffs, no nerfs. So sorry, we won't get to hear the big boys' comments this week. Starting with the buffs, Haas Bioroid has the identity stronger together. The minimum deck size reduced from 45 to 40 The influence increased from 15 to 20. The ability is all bioroid ice has plus one strength. And Janus 1.0, a sentry that is eight strength, has its res cost reduced from 15 to 12. It has four subroutines, each of which say do one brain damage. For Ginteki, the agenda brain trust, a three-for-two agenda that is and for each uh, token you get on it, each agenda counter, the ice for the rest of the game has cost one less to res. The rate of over-advancement to counters has been reduced from two-to-one to one-to-one. To one to one. So, previously... If you advanced it five times, you'd get one counter, seven times, you'd get two, and so on. Under the reboot project, if you advance it four times, you get one counter, five times, you get two, and so on. And Snowflake, the aforementioned Psy card, a barrier, Uh, Res 1 has had its strength increase from three to four. It has one Psy subroutine and I'll just mention it here. The side game is uh, the corp and the runner each secretly spend either zero, one, or two credits. And typically, the corp is the one who benefits. So if the revealed amounts are different, the good thing for the corp happens. If the revealed amounts are the same, the good thing for the runner happens. So it's a one-third chance for the runner, a two-thirds chance for the corp. In this case, the effect if the corp wins, that game is and the run. NBN has Restructured Data Pool, a 5-3 agenda, which has a, gives, the, gives you a new click ability to trace to give a tag. That trace has had its strength increase from 2 to 3. And TMI, a barrier with a res cost of 3 and a strength of 5, which has, it's a weird thing. When you res it, there's a trace. And if you're unsuccessful, it gets d-res, so the subroutine won't go off. That trace on res is increased from two to three. Uh, the subroutine is just end the run. And the other buff is for the namesake of this episode Draco, a sentry neutral, res cost of one, strength of zero. When you res it, you can pay. X credits, so whatever amount of credits you pay, you will put that number of power counters on the card. Each power counter increases it by one strength. It is then has a trace. That trace has been improved from 2 to 3. If the trace is successful, you will tag the runner and end the run. The cards that are unchanged for Haas BioRoid are Mandatory Upgrades, the 6 6-2 agenda, that is 6 advancement, that gives you plus one click for the remainder of the game, and Ash 2x3zb9cy, a bioroid upgrade with a res cost of 2, a trash cost of 3, on a successful run initiates a trace of 4, which if successful means that the runner can't access whatever else is in the server. And for Wayland, Project Atlas, a 3-2 agenda that is on the same one-to-one rate that Brain Trust now has. For each counter gained from over-advancing, you can go search for a card. And then Caduceus, a sentry with a res of three, a res cost of three, a strength of three, has two subroutines. One of them is a trace three to gain three credits. The other one a trace two to end the run. So here hear lots of traces in there. That is the theme of the data pack. Matrix Analyzer. Again, this is just my comments, my observations on the buffs in the set. There are no nerfs. Uh, Let me start with Stronger Together. In some ways, in theory, it's similar to the core set identity, Engineering the Future. See, that one, it's one credit for the first time you install a card every turn, right? So that's one extra credit for you. Here, every ice is plus one strength, which generally speaking is costing the runner one extra credit. But in practice, it's significantly weaker. There's a big difference between one credit for you and one credit less for them. 100 credit less for them for one doesn't help you to res it doesn't defend against inside job it does help against parasite but um you know they can still pen- spend it down with data sucker and whatnot in the fa- the run of fantasy flights uh card pool they ultimately released seven corp ids that had 40 cards for a minimum deck size the advantages to that are, for one thing, you can run only 18 agenda points. So you can have a different mix of agenda cards for one, uh, one fewer, right? That makes sense. Only nine two-pointers or conceivably three, six pointers going to be really crazy. And having a smaller deck just meet, leads to more consistency. So that's one way in which the reboot project has buffed this card is by allowing for more consistency in the deck. And then bumping the influence from 15 to 20, I mean, that's a lot. Especially since the identity, really, you really want your ice pretty much to be just bioroids. There kind of aren't enough bioroids at this point in the cycle, in the game. Uh, I mean, there are, you can have enough, but you'd like to see a bigger mix. Uh, I'm open to suggestions on what you'd put into a stronger together deck to take advantage of that 20 influence. Uh, I don't know, precognition maybe from Jinteki so that you can, uh, so that you can not mess up your accelerated beta tests. It'd be nice to have some way, San San City Grid, I guess, to have some way to potentially faster advance that um, expensive agenda, that 6-2 agenda. Uh, Maybe some, extra economy. There's not a whole lot of other economy in the game right now either. I mean, you've got beanstalk royalties, but not much beyond that. Yeah, it's uh, it's still not great. Uh, Engineering the Future is still a better card. Notice that of the five traces in the set, three of them received a boost from a trace two to a trace three. Here again, we see Fantasy Flight being a little more conservative right? They didn't want the cards to be too strong. They were they were okay with them being a little bit too weak. They didn't want them to be too strong. So that that extra credit is just going to make that a lot stronger. And you think about putting it in the NBN identity, remember, uh, they're always getting two extra credits. Well, what's the turn anyway? So those trace threes are trace fives, which are nothing to sneeze at. And I'll also comment on brain trust, the Gentechi agenda. I mean, The fact that you only need one extra advancement to get that agenda counter instead of two, that is a huge difference. That is a huge improvement. I mean, its main strength is still just that it's a 3-2 agenda. Generally speaking, if you have a 3-2 agenda, you're going to want to use it. So it's almost an auto-include. I mean, almost strictly better than take out your private security forces from the corset put in brain trusts even if you never over advance them but in certain early game situations if you advance it like it's a private security force you know get that fourth agenda count uh, advancement token on there so that you can have one agenda counter and all your ice costs one less that's pretty good not great but way better than it was we had to advance it five times Ugh, that's bad Mandatory upgrades. Here's the card from the corpse side that you want to put in your deck right away. It's Project Atlas. For one thing, it's a 3-2. And as I just said about brain trust in Gentechi, as is true of accelerated beta test, even in Bioroid, it's optional, right? You don't have to go flipping the cards over and looking for eyes. And certainly about... Um, Astroscript pilot program in NBN. I mean, the three or two agendas, you want them in your deck. They're way better than a four-two or five-two, like they tried to make brain brain trust for the over-advancement. So it's already good for that reason. But here is another reason why Project Atlas is a really good card. Because if you can get that fourth advancement and have one token to at any point at what they call, what you call instant speed, be able to search your deck for any card you want, that is a powerful ability. Think about the effects in this game that allow you to just go search your deck for something. And where we are here, the card pool as we have isn't. there's not much. Uh, for the runners, you just have gin, Special Order, Rabbit Hole, I guess. And those are all searching for very specific things. In Rabbit Hole's case, very specific things. In Wayland, you do already have aggressive negotiation. Is that what it's called? Where you can go, if you, if you can play that card the same turn that you score a card. Well, now, interestingly, if you're scoring a 4-2, you probably have an extra action on that turn, maybe, to be able to play aggressive negotiation and Project Atlas, get that extra counter if you're greedy. But to be able to go search for any card, I mean, it could just be something as simple as like, I need money, I need ice, but you're Wayland. So what might you really want? Sea Source or Scorched Earth or both. So this is really empowering to Wayland to have Project Atlas. If you can get that extra advancement on there, Definitely a mandatory upgrade. Precognition. Here's a new segment that is going to be looking at the reboot project information that's upcoming from the perspective of this podcast. Okay. So, what I mean by that is. As far as this podcast is concerned, we're only looking at the core set and what lies ahead. But of course, there is a whole data, po- a whole card pool stretching forward for us into the future and new stuff being released. And so, precognition is an opportunity to look at some of that new stuff. I put it here kind of far back in the show just because uh, I didn't want to load down the first part of the show. But let me talk about the concept of expansion material in the Reboot Project. First of all, the project has balanced, rebalanced the entire card pool all the way up through Data & Destiny, which is the fourth deluxe expansion. Uh, Each deluxe expansion that Fantasy Flight produced focused on one runner faction and one corp faction and provided a bunch of cards for those factions. So by going all the way to Data and Destiny, you've got all those extra cards for each faction and also for the mini-factions that were introduced in that final expansion, uh, deluxe expansion, not the final one, but that deluxe expansion. But for the cycles that follow, starting with the Moombad cycle, those are not going to be part of the reboot project. There was an attempt made and they just couldn't, They just couldn't make them work. That's the point where uh, a lot of people feel like the cards got wildly varying strengths, and so they just decided to draw a line at Data and Destiny. And yet, there are some good cards, some cards that are easily salvageable from later expansions, and uh, the big boy and his team want to introduce new cards as well. So, going forward, the goal is to have 30-card booster packs every six months or so. The first of these, Reflections, was released in October of last year, and it contains 14 brand-new cards, two for each faction, and 16 others that have been imported from later portions of the card pool. Of those 16 cards, five of them are just brought in completely unchanged, eight are brought in and strengthened, buffed, And three are brought in, but nerfed a little bit. Now, the new booster pack, Mind and Mayhem, is coming in late July 2023. And starting today, as I'm recording this, June 11th, spoilers are now starting to be released for this new pack. But due to my production schedule, it doesn't really make sense for me to to start in on those spoilers yet. I will be sharing them but I will start sharing them next week. However, since you may be listening to this podcast and be familiar with the Fantasy Flight Pool, but not familiar with the, this booster pack, I'm going to go through briefly and not talk too much about the Reflections booster pack. So first, I'll go through the 16 cards that are imported. Imported. You have Bagat, the Anarch card from Mumbad, its install cost reduced from 3 to 2. The Criminal Card crowdfunding from the Magnum Opus set has been nerfed to be Limit 1 per deck. The Criminal Card high-stakes job from the Mumbad cycle, its play cost reduced from 6 to 4. Akiko Nisei, the uh, Shaper identity from Rain and Reverie, is brought in with no change. Nyashia, the Shaper card from the Katara cycle, has its install cost reduced from 2 to 1. Psych Mike from Rain and Reverie, also no change. That's also a Shaper card. And the Neutral Build Script from Red Sand cycle has its ability to gain credits increase from 1 to 2. Uh, Sportshopper, also a neutral card, from the Moonbod cycle, has its install cost reduced. From three to two. On the corpse side, Ikawa project from the Katara cycle has been nerfed so that it has limit one per deck. Ravana 1.0 from Mumbad, no change. For, those are both for HB. For Genteki, political dealings from the Mumbad cycle has its res cost decreased from four to two. Ben Musashi, from the Red Sand Cycle, his trash cost increased from 3 to 4. For NBN, Fly on the Wall, from Rain and Reverie, the number of tags given increased from 1 to 2. Exchange of information from the Mumbad Cycle has been nerfed for its play cost from 0 to 1. The Wayland Card Commercial Bankers Group from the Mumbad Cycle, present with no change. And the neutral IPO from terminal directive is imported with no change. Now, as for the 14 cards that are new, again, two for each faction, I'll run through those a little bit more slowly just because uh, you couldn't possibly know what they are if you've never been exposed to them before. But there'll be a link to the page on DB in the show notes. For you to be able to uh, go through and see these cards for yourself. The first Anarch card. And is a flippable card. Each runner faction gets one of these cards. Where when you initially. When it's in your deck. When it's in your heap. When it's initially installed. It's on one side. And then when you flip it. Something will happen where it flips. To the other side. And uh Anyway, there's some some special rules about that. But the first one is called Molotov, a program that costs two to install. Uh, ice the the res cost for ice is increased by two credits, and when you res it, you put it on a card. You host it on a card. I'm sorry. When ice is resed, uh, you host it on a, that card, and then you flip it, and it becomes Blaze, which now has zero mu and a recurring credit for using icebreakers on the ice on which it's hosted, and that ice has minus one strength. The other Anarch card that's new is Human Rights Riot, a unique resource with a one install cost that reads, the first time you trash a card being accessed from a central server each turn, gain one credit, and force the corp to trash one card at random from HQ. The Criminal Flip card is On the Trail, a current event with a cost of zero. The first successful run each turn you make on a central, you place a credit on it. When there are three, you flip it. It becomes Moment of Truth. When you steal an agenda, you will trash the card and gain seven credits. Their other card is Sniper a killer with an install cost of 3 and a strength of 2 that costs 1 credit to break a subroutine and is 3 credits to boost by 1 strength, but a couple of wrinkles, if it is during a an event, a run event that you have played, its strength goes from 2 to 5, and it costs 0 credits to break a subroutine. That's interesting the two shaper cards the flip card is connect nope i'm sorry this is not the flip card connect the dots it's a run event you draw a card and then make a run on r and d when the run ends for each card you accessed you gain a credit and then also when the corp scores an agenda you get to put this card in your hand from your heap now the flip card subsidized processor hardware a chip an install cost of four, it reduces the install cost of programs by one. And then when you have no unused MU, it flips to borrowed storage and gives you three MU. Going over to the Corp side, uh, the two new Corp HB cards. The first is Next Level Clearance, an operation that costs three to play you trash up to four resed next ice and place that many advancement counters on an installed card. And Waldemar 1.0, a bioroid barrier with a res cost of 3 and a strength of 2 that gains an end-the-run subroutine for each resed bioroid ice up to 6. Genteki's two new cards are Thistle, a unique asset with a res cost of 1 and a trash cost of 1. At the start of your turn, you gain a credit. If it is trashed while it's installed, it causes 1 net damage. And when you score an agenda, you can install it from archives. And Anglerfish, an advanceable sentry with a res cost of 2 and a strength of 4, on encounter... If it is advanced, you remove all the advancement counters and do a net damage, just one. And the subroutine is to do a net damage and put a counter on it. For NBN, they have Snickerdoodle, a trap ice with a res cost of 1 and a strength of 2. Subroutines are the corp gains 3 credits and may draw 1 card. And the other subroutine is 1 give a runner a tag and trash the card. They also get Kampala City Grid, an upgrade with a res cost of zero and a trash cost of one. The runner then, if they're going to make a run on that server, has to pay four credits to start a run on the server, which then trashes the card right away. Then at the start of your turn, if the runner is tagged, you can put the card from archives into HQ. And Wayland gets two barriers because that's their thing. Bouncer is the first, a res cost of 4, a strength of 2. It reads this way, when you res this ice during a run, resolve its printed subroutines if there is no installed fractor. And those subroutines are the corp gains 2 credits and end the run. And the other is Quolec, with a res cost of 5 and a strength of 4, it cannot be bypassed. If a fractor is installed, it costs only f- uh, minus four to res. If an AI is installed, its strength is plus four, and it just has one subroutine and the run. So, if an, a fractor and an AI are installed, and no other fact, no other things affecting the costs, it'd be a res of one and a strength of eight. Those are the cards that were released uh, last fall in the reflections booster pack. And again, the new pack, Mind and Mayhem, we'll be sharing the new cards revealed from that as we hear them over the next several weeks. I'll probably push the this precognition segment to the top of the show going forward for the next few weeks. But hey, if you want to get in on the conversation and see them a little bit earlier, head on over to the Discord. Enigma, Worlds of Android. About three years after Netrunner was released, the Fantasy Flight put out a tome, a hefty-sized book called The Worlds of Android, Visions of Life in the Future. And this is a book that is, it's a, it's a big hardcover book. It's got a lot of small text. It has a lot of pretty pictures uh, It's not just straight uh, reference material sometimes there are stories in there there's uh, there's like one several page spread that's supposed to be like a new like a newspaper article about Hospiroid. anyway uh, I'll provide links in the show notes to the product page for the book and also seven different news articles about the book and my thinking is that since there is no other Flavor text for me to read, this would be a great thing to read. And there's like no way I'm going to get through the whole thing in the course of this podcast. So, what I'm going to do is right here read you the product page, uh, the full text from that product page, as it kind of explains what this book is about. Then I will run through the table of contents. And in the Astroscript pilot program, portion of this podcast i will read the foreword and the introduction but what will i read next week well that's where you the listener can influence what happens in the podcast if you have a preference for which portion you'd like me to jump to just let me know otherwise i'll just start at the beginning and work my way through it here is the article the news the news article from the fantasy flight page The World Changed, People Did Not The Worlds of Android is your definitive guide to the Android setting and its unique vision of the future. A beautiful 272-page hardbound setting guide and art book, The Worlds of Android features full-color art, stunning gatefolds, and a polyphony of narrative voices that convey the immense diversity of human experience. In the rich, fictional universe made famous by Android Netrunner and the Android board game, mankind has spread itself out across the solar system with varying degrees of success. The moon and Mars are colonized. A plan to terraform Mars is well underway, hindered only by a civil war that has broken out on that planet. On Earth, a massive space elevator has been built, stretching up into the sky. It is the hub of trade in the solar system, and most people refer to it as the beanstalk. Enormous megacorporations, called Corpse by most, influence every facet of daily life. Food, 3D, music, career choices... Gentechi and Haas Bioroid redefine life itself, making clones and bioroids with brain taped, artificially intelligent minds. The Wayland Consortium owns a piece of everything that goes up or down the beanstalk, and everything goes up or down the beanstalk. Finally, NBN shapes what you think and dream with the most extensive media network ever conceived on Earth under their control. Throughout its three sections, the Worlds of Android explores these corps and their most visionary innovations. It explores what technological advances and extraterrestrial expansion mean to a human population that no longer resides exclusively on Earth. And it explores the question of what it means to be human in a world filled with clones, bioroids, and other forms of artificial intelligence. It is the future. The world changed. People did not. The not-too-distant future described by the worlds of Android features technology that may appear miraculous by present-day standards, but as with much of the best science fiction, the setting consistently aims toward the plausibility that originates from a seed of truth. More importantly, there's one element that's immediately recognizable within the android setting. It's vision of humanity. In essence, humanity remains unchanged. Humanity's circumstances have changed, but human nature has not. Accordingly, we see ourselves within the people of android. We identify with one or another of its many fictional figures, and we are motivated to pursue the answers to the questions they ask. As much as it is an exploration of futuristic technologies, locations, events, and cultures, the worlds of Android is an engaging reflection on what it means to be human, and not just what it means to be some generic human, but what it means to be an individual within a world that all its possibilities have enabled, what freedoms would we enjoy? What luxuries? What responsibilities would we have? At their core, the Android universe and the games set within it challenge us to consider both the largest of scales and the most intimately personal. It is a setting of, quote, vast economic forces filtered down to the level of a single individual, as Android Universe co-creator Kevin Wilson notes in his foreword to the book. Infinite Frontiers The world has changed. Humanity has settled distant planets. We have shared the spark of life with clones and machines. Our horizon stretches outward into the distant reaches of the solar system and inward to the virtual worlds where we engage in business pleasure and criminal endeavors there is no longer a single world that serves as the center of the android universe there is no singular definition of what it's human and no single voice can possibly represent its future the worlds of android therefore provides plentiful perspectives documents, conversations, images, and stories to convey the tremendous, numberless variety of future experiences. These stories, the questions they raise, and the information they provide about the not-too-distant future will naturally appeal to fans of Android Netrunner and the Android board game, but they should also be of interest to anyone who has ever asked himself or herself where our advances in technology may lead us and what our futures may hold. Explore these questions and explore the future's infinite frontiers with the worlds of Android. Here is the table of contents. The foreword, written by Kevin Wilson, an introduction called The Worlds of Android, which is followed immediately by 30 pages of shorter articles on The Corpse and New Angeles. Before we get into part one, it is the future. An 18-page segment on Haas Bioroid and Bioroids. An 18-page section on Gintechi and clones. 22 on NBN and the network. And then 18 on the Wayland Consortium and the New Angeles Space Elevator. Then we go into part two, The World Changed. 22 pages about New Angeles and Earth at large. Uh, I'm sorry, just mainly New Angeles. And then 10 pages about Earth. 18 about the moon and Heinlein, Luna, they call it. And 22 about the Ma- about Mars and Bradbury. And then P- part three is people did not. 30 pages about warfare, the world's war, the Martian civil war, the business of warfare, and state militaries and Prysec. 14 pages about androids, android labor and seeking meaning, and then 34 about police and crime, the NAPD, organized crime, and net crimes, concluding with a glossary that is five pages. So if any one of those sections appeals to you, let me know about it. Otherwise, we'll just start with part one next week. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is provided by Alexi Action. The website for this podcast is Netrunner2.1.com, and you can play online at retechie.fun. If you want to contact me, then my username is Auberman, A W E B E R M A N, on Discord and Board Game Geek and Reddit. And on Board Game Geek, there's a thread for this podcast and group, Play Group. It's also the Play Group. There's a channel for it on Discord, but there's this thread on BoardGameGeek linked in the show notes. Or you can send me an email to an reboot 2.1. That's, that's the 2.1 number 2.numeral 1 at gmail.com. As I said, the Astroscript pilot program will be the foreword and introduction for the worlds of Android. Thanks for listening. See you next week. The Android universe first started as a conversation in a van on the way home from a game convention with my friend and colleague Dan Clark. I had some rough ideas about a setting I wanted to pitch to Christian for a board game, but it was that conversation that crystallized those thoughts into what would later become the kernel of the setting. I wanted to do hard sci-fi, or at least use plausible science in the game. Ambitiously, Dan and I discussed a near future and the tradition of cyberpunk, where we could also address some of the current issues of our time, such as the marginalization of the labor force and rising wealth inequality. I wanted to tackle some real, serious topics in the game in a way that I'd never attempted before. At the idea's core were two competing corporations, both peddling a different form of artificial labor. On the one hand was Jinteki, a genetics company in the Eastern tradition selling cloned workers. Their logo was a bonsai, a tiny tree that's had its growth purposefully stunted for aesthetic reasons via careful pruning. That bit of quiet symbolism still pleases me today. On the other hand, Haas Bioroid was a stolidly Western corporation, manufacturing robotic workers and keeping an eye firmly on the bottom line, they were cold steel and numbers as a foil to Ginteki's deep traditions and artistic perfectionism. Caught between these two behemoths were the displaced workers, an angry, powerless mob of ordinary people forced out of their jobs by a series of technological breakthroughs. They had formed a group called Human First and used sledgehammers to attack the androids, both because the robotic workers were extremely durable, and because I wanted to create parallels to the tale of John Henry and the steam engine. The story of the man who would rather die than let a machine replace him is one of my longtime favorites, and if you look, you'll see that we ultimately named a line of mining clones in the setting after him. One of the murder suspects in the original board game, Mark Henry is from that line of clones. These three groups, and the friction between them, were the seed that everything else ultimately sprang from. Before I had thought of the beanstalk, or decided to put a colony on the moon named after one of my favorite science fiction writers, there was this triad, with each group opposed to the other two. This appealed to me, because although it was reminiscent of Blade Runner, an obvious influence on the setting, it went in a completely different direction with the same technology and allowed us to tell very different stories. Android was, at its core, a setting about vast economic forces filtered down to the level of a single individual. For the rest of the trip, Dan and I invented and fleshed out the first of those individuals, Louis Blaine, the corrupt cop on the ounce with his wife, was the original android character. Next was Raymond Flint, the private eye, unlucky in love and still haunted by ghosts from the war. Many, many other characters have followed since, coming to life through the cards and Android Netrunner or within the pages of the android novels. This universe has grown far beyond my original rough ideas, and I'm amazed and proud to watch it keep growing from that first tiny seed. Kevin Wilson, July 2015 The Worlds of Android Introduction From the highest peak on the equator, at the heart of the greatest and worst city Earth has ever known, A nano-lattice weave of carbon fibers stretches to the heavens. The Beanstalk The giant space elevator transformed the solar system into a new frontier of opportunity. A city was built on the moon, and Mars was colonized. Around the base of the Beanstalk grew the Megapolis of New Angeles officially home to half a billion people, and perhaps as many more unofficially, and the headquarters for the megacorporations that created the network, the arcologies, and the androids. Humans have come a long way since the Dark Ages. Cybernetic implants, gene therapy, and AI in every pocket ensure that life is pleasant, convenient, and long for those who can't afford it. But beneath the cracks in the veneer, there's still poverty, crime, and war, and dozens of societal scapegoats. Androids, intelligent synthetic life forms, walk the streets and work the jobs too dangerous or onerous for humans. They're taking away jobs from flesh-and-blood workers, redefining what it means to be rich and poor, even challenging the definition of what it means to be human. And there's more of them every year.